Mais euh, avant de commencer, je dois vous dire que vos enregistrements de Ravel et Debussy m'ont vraiment ouvert l'esprit vers de nouvelles possibilités musicales et un nouveau monde sonore. Oh. Alors, euh, je voulais juste vous remercier pour cela. Euh, de ma part... C'est très gentil. Non, merci, mais de ma part, et je suis sûr euh, de la part de nombreux pianistes de tous niveaux, euh, jeunes et moins jeunes. C'est très gentil, merci, ça me touche beaucoup. Welcome back to another season of Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Fnan, director of content at Steinway and Sons, and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. If you enjoy Soundboard, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it wherever you pod your casts. My guest today is Steinway artist Jean-Yves Thibaudet, a man who is as responsible as anyone alive for bringing solo piano French repertoire, namely Debussy and Ravel, into popular culture. He joins Soundboard to speak about his latest album, Carte Blanche, on Decca Records. Let's start with Carte Blanche. Yes. Which, as you may know, is a French term, gifting the bearer with complete freedom. And in this case, complete artistic freedom for this album. I was really delighted that you chose to open this, Dario Marianelli's music for Pride and Prejudice. I imagine that this music must have touched you dearly as it, this score has, has been in your heart for so many years. And I understand, too, that there's a special arrangement just for this album. So this album is really called Carte Blanche because really Deca gave me Carte Blanche. And actually, when we were looking for a title for the album, it was really funny. Everybody came up with some very fancy, wonderful titles, and uh, we kind of liked some. We were not sure. And then suddenly, the director of the label said, you know, internally, we've been calling that album Carte Blanche because I just gave Jean-Yves Carte Blanche to record whatever he wanted. He said, why don't we call it Carte Blanche? And we all said, wow, that's fantastic. Yes, let's call it Carte Blanche. Deca really did give me a complete carte blanche. There was one rule, was that I could not play anything that was recorded previously, which means every single track on the album is new recording, something I've never recorded. Because people have asked me, oh, why isn't there any Debussy or Ravel in there? Or, well, I said, because I recorded it all, so I couldn't put it back in there. <clears throat> Now, to start with the beginning, since... It does start the album. Pride and Prejudice was a very important score in my life for, for many reasons. I mean, the movie was beautiful. The, the music, it's so extraordinary. I mean, Dario Marinelli really did the most magical score. And it has had so much success for so many years. It has touched so many people. And this is something that really has changed my life because so many people will come to a concert wherever I am in the world. And those are people that don't usually go to classical music concert. They just come to the concert because they see him playing. They say, oh, that's the guy who played in Pride and Prejudice. And they just show up at the concert. They don't even know what I'm going to play. And I think that's really remarkable. I think it has opened that spectrum so uh, immensely. And I think this is what we need. And I think the film scores for that are beautiful vehicle that give us the possibility to touch so many people. I mean, we're speaking about 100 million or 
much more than I could ever in my entire life touch, you know, with concert, would be many, many, many concerts. So this is really something that is very, very important. And other than that, when we decided to do the album, I approached Dario and I said, Dario, I really want this music to be part of the album, but it's a solo album, obviously. He said, would you consider making a suite, a new suite from the most important moments of the score? And it will be you know, in my recording. He said, oh, absolutely. And he just came up with that beautiful suite uh, that is opening my Carte Blanche album. And the good news is that now I can actually play it also in concert. So, I mean, the, the score is a beautiful score. is not just attached to the movie. Now it can have a life on its own as well. I mean, it's, it's kind of a tragedy to have those fantastic scores in movies for, for, for so many years. There's fabulous scores. And they just are in the movie and that's it. They just don't exist. They don't have a life of their own. And I think it's very sad because they are great scores. So this one now... We have a suite from Pride and Prejudice and I can play it for many more years. it for the film are there special challenges there that you don't encounter when recording solo yes it actually is very very different when you record a soundtrack for a movie than when you record a solo just for an album that doesn't have a movie it's a very special challenge there are different challenges suddenly you're not completely in control i mean you are in control of how you play of course but i mean you're not in control of what you want to do, you become completely at the service of the movie, of the image, of the story, of the characters, of the atmosphere. And it's extremely time. Very often we have a click and we have a huge monitor while we play and we see the images that go through with the click. And we know that we arrive at that note because the composer knows you know, what he's doing. So at that moment, it's a very special important moment there will be something happening in the score and we have to be at that moment right at the time that somebody for example would have that's the moment when she touches the door to open the door boom we have to be there if i arrive there before or after we missed it we have to do it again so it's extremely time so the challenge is that you have to play musically it has to sound organic and like if you were just playing i mean normally at your leisure but in fact you are completely time-wise constricted by what is there and also the director is always very, very present. And in, the, in that case, it was Joe Wright. And he tells you emotionally what he wants to feel in the music. So you're not anymore the one who decides. It's not how I feel at this moment. It's how I need to feel for the music, for, sorry, for the movie. What we want to, to give in that, in that moment in the movie. And 
very often the director would come in the studio and say, hey, so here, this is what happens. You see here, and he started explaining to me and, and then we discuss it. I want to feel that in the music and here, this, you see, this is very sad here. Or this is, it's all those very specific things that they wanted. And then I would, I would go back to the piano. They go back in the sound room and we do it again. Very often we do many, many takes. But when it clicks, so to speak, uh, no pun intended, but when it really clicked is unbelievable. When you can see the images and we see the images without music, first of all, and you realize how important the music is. Then you add the music and one is perfectly in sync, not only time-wise, but feeling-wise and all of that atmosphere-wise then it's completely magical. That's when you realize how much it's, it's together. The music is with the story, with the film. And it is really fascinating. And it's something that is completely different, obviously, than when I go on stage and I play with an orchestra or a recital or whatever else I do, where I can do whatever I want. I can take time wherever I want. I, can, I mean, it's just I'm completely free to interpret it the way I feel it at that moment. Well, the movie, you can't. You have to really follow somehow kind of the orders of the matter of the movie. The list consolation that you give us on this album, number three in D flat, it's a piece I wrestled with decades ago as a piano student. And it's one of those pieces that sounds easy, but is in fact hard. <laughs> At least it was for me. This accompaniment figure in the list seems inevitable, but it's really quite tricky to pull off smoothly. The Least Consolation is a very special piece in my life, uh, which is the case with every piece in that album. I mean, I want to say that, having said it yet, that this album is a very personal, very intimate uh, album because it's all pieces that have either a story, had a story in my life, or they represent or remind me of people, some that are not with us anymore. I mean, they all have a very special meaning. Now, The Least Consolation number three is probably... Uh, one of my favorite encores. I mean, now we speak about encore that I play after a recital or after a concerto. And I have to say the least consolation is really one of my favorite. And I think it's certainly an audience favorite as well. I mean, people always, when you start, people you hear people going like, oh, that kind of, oh, it's, it's like, it's a peaceful, it's something that is just so beautiful. It is, it's very lyrical to me. It's, it's like, it's like Bellini, it's like Bel Canto. The, you have the left hand that accompanies, like it could be the harp, it could be the, some, anything in the orchestra. And then you have the singer, which is the right hand, that just sings freely uh, on top of that. And it's really a remarkably beautiful, beautiful piece. Now, nothing is as easy as it sounds. I actually can tell you very short, uh, quick anecdote from Richter, which I've never forgot. The only time that I met Richter personally was many years ago, obviously. I was very young. It was after a concert, one of these recitals where he played a complete Bach, was late in his life. He was, used to play all those Bach recitals. I forgot with the English suites or what it was, but it's all Bach program. And I was asked if I, my agent said, if you would like to meet the maestro. And I said, oh my God, yes, I would love to meet him. He's such a hero and I'm such a great fan. So I was very nervous to meet him, I can tell you. And then eventually I went backstage, we were in the dressing room with a lot of people, and finally was my moment in front of Mr. Richter. And I was and I was thinking all the time I was waiting, what am I going to tell him? I mean, you know, what do you want to tell somebody after the call? I didn't want to sound like an idiot. And I was so, I mean, I was just so starstruck. I right in front of him and he spoke German because he was, you know, the language we had in common. And I looked at, at him and I said, Well, 
Mr. Reed, this was an absolutely fabulous concert. Thank you so much. And what an honor to meet you. And, and then I don't know why I wanted to add something else and add it. And my God, what a difficult program. And then it was a silence. And all this time I was speaking to him, he wasn't really looking at me. I mean, he was just you know, kind of there. And suddenly he looked at me in the eye and he said, Alle Programmen sind schwer. And that was the only thing I got out of his mouth. And I left and I said, you know what? He's right. And in fact, he's right. Everything is difficult. Well, this, this Liz Consolation, I mean, it's not like a Liz Concerto, but it is difficult for different reasons. It's not just technically that it doesn't go fast or you have a lot of octaves. It's not that. It's not the pyrotechnical, but it's difficult musically. It's difficult. And even just physically, how to produce those sounds the evenness of the left hand that has to be completely just accompanying very evenly. Sometimes slow movement are almost more difficult than a fast movement. I see that when I teach sometimes it's really interesting. If you have a teacher, student that has you know, good fingers that can play, they can play fat, they can play loud. I mean, you can't really go much wrong with that, right? If you just play what is written. But when you have suddenly five notes that are slow, well, you have to do something with them. And it's difficult. And that, I think that consolation to shape the phrase of, of the right hand, make long phrases, I think it really is, you really need to have some kind of art for that. And it's really difficult. And I think it takes years of, you know, I think just getting used to how to play and how to sing with your piano, which is obviously always our, my, it's my ultimate goal is to make the piano sing. And it's obviously a dream. It's, a, it's not going to happen, but it's the dream that I'm, I'm following. This is where this is where I want to go, and I try always to sing with the piano, and that's very important. Let's talk one more. I was startled by the beauty of the Brahms Opus 118 Intermezzo, but more so, I was startled by the modernity of some of its musical gestures. There are moments here that I think would be at home in a lot of contemporary pop. It's funny that you mentioned the Brahms because when we were speaking about the least consolation, I almost said, when I said one of my favorite encore, I almost said, together with the Brahms. And there we are now speaking about the Brahms. Well, Brahms is probably, maybe I've played even more often in my life. I, I wish I had a, a little computer that would tell me where I played those encores and how many times. Because really, that Brahms intermezzo, oh my God, I've played it so many times. And it is certainly one of my favorite encore. And again, it's always an encore that the audience always, always love. It's just, and it's an encore that people are, it's a piece that people are familiar with. It's yet again, not difficult in the sense, you know, it's not one of those demanding technically piece, which means a lot of young people or people that don't have automatically 
you know, at the highest level of playing the piano, they can still sit down and play most of it and it makes them happy, So, which is already good. So that's why it's, it's a very popular piece. Now, um, I think the genius of, of these composers and Liszt, whether it's Liszt, whether it's Brandt, I mean, a lot of others, is to think that at their time when they wrote their music, they were sometimes so ahead of their time and it was they were writing music that is completely timeless. And somehow this music could be written today. It could be, I mean, it could be written by, a, you know, maybe in a movie for a composer in some moments, in some modulation, some, the voicing, the way it's done, that is really incredible. When you think at the time it was written, I mean, those great, you know, genius composers, they were, they were visionaries. They were so ahead of their time. And this is why it's always so wonderful in music to see how each composer is linked to the next one and they all have an influence on what's going to happen in the future and everything is connected. And this is what is wonderful. From, this is from the beginning of time, the beginning of music, the most classical pieces. We realized that every composer somehow takes over from where another one has left and they're influenced by that. I mean, it's like a complete, it's like a collective memory. It's like you have all of those things that are there and they all part, and a lot of composers would have not written the music they have written if before them there wasn't this composer or this other composer. It's all wonderful, and this is what is completely remarkable about our you know music, our world of music, and why we so so lucky. And it goes even further in the 20th century. I think our composer from I mean I hate to always speak about classical music, and this for me is only one kind of you know great music, but there are let's say categories we have to still. So what we call classical music, well, the 20th century was completely influenced by all the other kind of music. I mean, you've seen Ravel, for example, was influenced by jazz, by blues completely, by Gershwin that he met, and, and vice versa. Gershwin was the greatest admirer of Ravel and all the, the French composers. Uh, and then the jazz, and all of that is all connected, and it all has, it just comes together somehow. And this is what I find really fascinating. And refreshing and that every day we play this beautiful music and we really we really have that well that leads us naturally to i'll be around <laughs> which was a very gentle jazz arrangement of a standard by uh, steinway artist bill Sharlop. so i guess this is your opportunity to segue to jazz here if you like absolutely i've i've always um admired jazz uh since i think not since i was a child i have to be honest i discovered jazz when i was a teenager more like was 15, 16, maybe even 17, when I started going in Paris to the conservatory and I was listening to radios uh, and then eventually later going to clubs in Paris, jazz clubs. It's a world that immediately grabbed my attention. I mean, it's just, I just, I was just amazed at those harmonies, at this rhythm, freedom, this, I mean, it was just so attractive. I just loved it so much. And immediately, of course, I wanted to play some of it, be able to play some of it and I mean, I will never be, you know, a, a real, you know, jazz player. But whenever I play jazz, uh, I did, for example, the, the my Bill Evans, the conversation with Bill Evans album or the Duke Ellington album. I'm not trying to imitate anybody. Or to, I'm just being myself. But what I do is I play this music with my um, with my heart and my conception. I mean, how I feel it, and I'm making uh, more of an homage somehow to those great masters that was, for example, Bill Evans. And that's what I tried to explain what I did. That album it was difficult for people to understand why I would play music at Bill Evans. And I said, I'm not trying to imitate Bill Evans here. It's not the point. I'm playing this music 
like I play Ravel. I just is Thibaut de plays Ravel. They was Thibaut de plays Bilevins. So I'm playing with my soul and my entire heart, and this is how I feel it. And so it was for me just a, a complete work of love, and it really opened my mind in many ways. And so jazz became really a constant part of my life. Still is now. I have lots of different projects, uh, lots of friends in that world. And I wanted somehow to include in that album something of that kind. We also have the, the Boogie Woogie. I mean, this is a bit different. But that particular piece by Bill Charlap, I mean, Bill Charlap, it's, you know, I've never met him, but I have the greatest admiration. He's the Sonata master. I mean, the way he plays the piano, the way he plays with the instrument is just so fascinating and so, I mean, I'm, I really am always in awe when I listen to him. And that particular piece for me is just... It reminds me, it's the same kind of, it's like this stillness, this this peace. And I was going to say, it reminds me of Peace, Peace by Belevens, which is another unbelievable piece of music where you feel like time has stopped. You're just floating. There's just no, there's no, I don't know how to explain. It's, it's mesmerizing, it's hypnotizing almost. He arrived really at that level of the harmonies and the way he does it. It's just so beautiful and I've played that that piece same thing not really as an encore after a concert I mean I think I should sometime but I've done it like with friends or when I'm somewhere I mean different occasion I would sit by the piano and, and just play that and it's just such a soothing it's such an amazing experience for both for me playing and for the listener the recording I think we had three or four days I can't remember every day after a long day of recording but we do all the different takes all the different pieces at the end, we would have one take of I'll Be Around, Charlotte. So that was kind of our, our bonbon, you know, our soothing, our reward for the hard day of work. So I would sit down, I would relax, and I would just play that piece for me and for the people in the sound room, you know, for the producer, for the engineers. And, and we had three takes of it. So nothing was wrong with either of the takes. We just had to feel which one was we thought the most special and it was the second the second night and we all felt that something happened and this is what happened with this kind of music it was something where really suddenly it was like oh we felt like everything had stopped the world had stopped we were just floating there in this beautiful mist of fabulous harmonies and and that's the one we chose so it's a it's a one take and we did it every night, and it had to be like that. You have to be inspired. It's not about if you miss an order, whatever you do. This is about having to create that incredible atmosphere. And we thought that this is the night that we got it. So that's what's on, on the album. You captured that moment. You captured that magic moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, at, at the end of the day, an album is, uh, for me, a CD is like an album of pictures because it's a moment in time. People don't always understand that. But we never play the same. I will never play, which that proves it. I played three three days in a row the Charlap and it was never the same. And it's not that anything was wrong, as I said, with any of the others. It's just that that one had a particular something was, you know, just that 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 grace, something that just happened there. And this is what um, what happened. So we do recordings. We love them. We give the best we can at that particular moment. But then if we do it another time in five years, it will be different. I mean, even the next day is different. We never. So it just captures a moment. So we try to make the moment the most beautiful we can, obviously. <laughs>
you said early in this conversation that this is a personal and intimate album for you. And uh, for me, gentleness and intimacy is something that I think characterizes your playing, not only on this album, but throughout your oeuvre. And I associate you more with Quiet Morsels by Debussy, Ravel, Satie, than say a, a Beethoven or a Rachmaninoff concerto. We spoke about this before the interview, but again, your Ravel and Debussy really opened my mind decades ago now to a new sound world. Your pedaling, your pianissimo, this true, this true enacting of impressionism, sort of the opposite of a, of a Polini or an Aymar, equally brilliant interpreters, but at the other end of the spectrum. I wonder if you could try to speak to this approach and, and whether you think I've stated it fairly here. It's a, it's a very complicated uh, uh, and multi-layered conversation and answer. We could go on for that for a long time. I mean, there are obviously lots of ways to interpret music uh, and, and pieces. And now if you take the case of Ravel and Debussy, there were two composers that were extremely precise on the way they wrote the music. I mean, like the detail of the markings on the score, I mean, is going further than most composers. So it is fascinating to see that all the pianists that play that music by still doing everything that is written, which is a lot, it's amazing, it still can be so different, which always shows that there still is so much left for the interpreters. Sometimes people say, oh, but then what do you have? Well, said, it's, everything is left. I mean, this is like you do what is written on the score, but then after that, there's still a world left uh, to your fingers. And this is what proves it, that the same piece, everybody is doing what's written the score, yet it sounds so different. So this is what is remarkable. Now, I think we all have uh, identity. I mean, we have... Like it's like a it's like an ID card, you know. There's something a DNA. I think first of all of the sound. I think great pianists have, and I think great instrumentalists in general and singers even more obviously. But we have a unique sound that is our voice. And I think some great pianists for me it's like if I hear a recording without knowing it is, I will tell you immediately who it is. Whether it's the style or really sometimes just the sound. I say, oh my God, this is Rubinstein you know, there's a definite, there's a palette of, I mean, as I said, it's like a voice. It really is unique. And, and it's funny enough, they play on different pianos and they will still have the same sound to a certain degree. Like the sound, the way they produce the sound, they will get it from all different pianos because this is their voice. So this is what, I mean, for me, the, the music of Ravel and, and Debussy was always, I mean, obviously I, I grew up with it. It was, but you know, I also grew up as much as, with the German repertoire. I always tell people, my mother is German, so I'm really 50% German on her side and 50% French on my father's side. My teachers, of course, my first teacher in Paris was Lucette Descaves, who was her, herself a friend and collaborator of Ravel. It's unbelievable that she knew him and she played with him. Uh, so I had that direct kind of connection link with him through her. She told me all the things that he told her, um, all the mistakes, the wrong things on the score, what he wanted, what he didn't want. I mean, I felt almost like I met him, which is unbelievable. So that's an incredible privilege and a treasure. But I also had uh, Ren Gianoli as a teacher who was an absolute, I mean, her world was Schumann, Brahms, Bach. 
I mean, all the German repertoire. And, and she really gave me that, that love and that understanding. And that, so I played all of that as well. Uh, and then, of course, Ciccolini was my big, you know, my master and a mentor all the way until he died. I was still going to play with him. And then I played with him all those other, other pieces. I mean, I recorded all the Rachmaninoff concertos. So I always try to do all of that. Now, there is maybe something that I bring to, to that music. And this is all very, it's personal. I mean, it's just that I was always fascinated. I mean, for me, the piano, it's a phenomenal instrument. I mean, for me, of course, it's the best instrument in the world. I mean, for me, it's no question. Piano is the richest instrument. It's, we have an entire orchestra on our fingers. And I think this is what we have to produce with the piano is to find all these colors, all these different sounds. And it's limitless. There is no limit. The sky is the limit. And this is what I do. I mean, I think of some of the Debussy preludes because I'm in the middle of performing them now, both books together. I've been working, I don't know, 20, 30 years on those preludes. I think I've looked at the score and I've seen everything. Well, sometimes I still discover things I hadn't seen before. But more than that, I can still sit at the piano for hours and try to find colors, try to find different things that I want to express. Also with the pedals, all the tricks you can do with the pedals. It's fantastic. I mean, there's so much. So for me, really, this music is all about colors, about what you can produce. And honestly, it's not so much in the fortissimo. I mean, some pieces, really, of course, you, they have big climaxes and you will play forte, fortissimo, it doesn't matter. But for me, the research is in the soft moments. And you can go, and it is written often, it's piano, pianissimo, pianissimo, sometimes even più pianissimo, or four piece. I mean, they go that, and you can produce that with the modern piano. This is the beauty that we have, that we have not only the power, but we can also go so soft. And the, and the sound, it still speaks, it's still there. If you play in a huge concert hall, if it's a good hall, you can still play very soft, and people can still hear it. It's like, instead of if you speak loud to somebody, or if you just murmur in their, in their ear, just go, just do something very soft. Well, we can do that with the piano. And that's for me is my fascination. And that's where I work with this music because it's beyond the notes and you have to create. So I, I hate the cliche of, you know, the impressionist and the, and the, the painting and all of that. But I hate to say it, but there is a connection. I mean, there's always a connection in the world of art it's always connection between all the forms of arts. And specifically, I think at the turn of the century and in those times, 1900, 1910, 1920, was all the incredible revolution with Stravinsky. With, I mean, all of that happened at the same time. It's crazy. Uh, and Ravel was at that time writing and Debussy. And it was just such an explosion of, of talents and of new, of modern things. And they are related. Somehow they are related, of course. And those people were friends. And they were inspired by each other. They would go to see an exhibition of something new by Monet. Or, and I have, I've done actually that experience a few times in my life where I performed uh, Ravel and Debussy in a museum surrounded by paintings from that era. And I have to say, it's a very deep, almost spiritual experience. I remember once, I think it was in, I can't remember, it was in the States, if it was in Detroit, Minneapolis, I can't remember. It was somewhere in the Midwest. They had an exhibition of Monet à Véteuil, which is a, a, you know, a collection of a painting that he did. And there were like 40 Monet paintings. And that museum had a very big room that was a round, completely round room. And there were those 40 paintings were all around. And then they put the piano in the middle. And maybe, I don't know, 100, 200 people. It was not a huge crowd. But, 
uh, were there. And people could come to ours before. They could just wander around, see all these paintings, then sit down. And eventually I came in and I played a program that was probably half Debussy, half Ravel. I mean, I can't remember. But I remember just the emotion and the inspiration and the connection that was there. And I think that's really fascinating. So this is what is for me, this music. I think I go more, there might be a cerebral element to it. And I, that's not the one that, for me, I, I'm, I mostly go to the sensual. I mean, I mean, I think especially, I mean, Ravel, there's something so sensual about his music. I mean, those, those harmonies are just unbelievable. Uh, we were speaking earlier about modern. Now you can speak of completely. I mean, everything is there. I mean, jazz, just name it, is all present already in, in his music. And it's just, and the music is really, in his head, we know that he was hearing already orchestra because a lot of piano pieces that he wrote at the piano, later he orchestrated them. And of course, he was one of the greatest orchestrators that ever existed on the planet. I mean, he's a hero of orchestration. Uh, and when he wrote the piece at the piano, he was already hearing this instrument in his head. So when we play this music, we have to become like we have the piano has to be like our orchestra. We have to find all those different timbers and all those different colors, all those different sounds, all those different. And I keep telling that when I teach, that sometimes it's like you have with five fingers, you have three instruments. They need to sound different. It has to, independence is incredible. And this is what we can work on. And for that, one life is not enough. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, we talked about the opening of the album. Let's close with talking about the close, which is Adagio for Strings. This piece has one of the most heart-rending chord progressions in all of music for me, that 3-4. Having done the transcription yourself, I'm sure you're intimately aware with uh, how this piece is built. Maybe you could speak a bit about um, your arrangement of Adagio here. I think I've mentioned that in almost every interview that I've had where we speak about this album and we speak specifically about this Barbara Adagio. And I said that for me in that album, the biggest challenge and the most difficult piece was the Barbara Adagio. And again, like we said earlier, you would think maybe it would be like the Pierre Etude de Concert because it's really fast, sounds horribly difficult. Right. There's a lot of difficult things, but for some reason, now we speak of a challenge. That was, for me, like a mountain to climb. And I wasn't sure until we arrived actually at the recording and we were going to do it. I wasn't sure until I would hear the result if it was something that we could put, if it would work or not. Because it was for me almost impossible. I said, how can I at the piano work, make a piece like that work that is written for strings, string, you know, quartet or string orchestra, doesn't matter, it's the same, but just for strings. So here you have instrument that can hold a note for that long time without having the note die, the note still continues it can even make a crescendo. <laughs> and here we are with our instrument and we just push, you know, the, the, the key and then the notes there and then eventually it will disappear. And then it's like, how do we do? How do we deal with that? So it was an incredible challenge. And I have to say, I worked a lot on that. And it was a fascinating work. It gave me so much reward at the end of the day. And I'm really somehow, if I can say that about thinking, I'm really proud of the result that, it gives me really a great deal of joy that I was able to produce what, what I wanted with, with the piano. We haven't spoken about that, and I'm not going to be too long on it because that's not the point of this interview. But I need to say that I had the piano, the instrument, was the most beautiful Hamburg Steinway. I mean, it was just an absolute joy. It's a rather, it's a rather new instrument that uh, 
is at the, the school where I teach, the Colburn School in Los Angeles. It's a wonderful, wonderful school. And I'm in residence there. And this is one of uh, our new, new piano that was chosen at the factory by Fabio Bidini, who is our uh, piano teacher in faculty. And, and it, I have to say, it is really a magical instrument. And this is what I needed for this particular recording. I needed really a piano that would give me the possibility to do all those incredibly magic magic sonorities and find that magic. Now, in the barber, it was really interesting. I actually transcribed, it's, it's, it's a word that doesn't really mean anything. What I did, I took the quartet score and I just exactly just wrote it, I mean, put it back in the piano. But at the same, I didn't change one thing, not one note, not one also, not one tessitura, which means every octave is where it is at the string quartet. But there are some arrangements that are kind of simplified or made whatever the reason is, and they just don't work. You lose the entire uh, idea of the piece. So I basically just take exactly the score and just put it to the piano and play it. Now, the problem is that I have 10 fingers, I have a keyboard, I have a percussive instrument, and now I have to, to make long lines. And that was so complicated. I always say that it's almost like being a magician. When we're at the piano, sometimes we do things that we give the impression of doing something. Like, for example... When I was saying we sing with the piano, obviously we can't. When, I, when we play legato, the real legato doesn't exist with the piano. It's a percussive instrument. Only the voice or string instrument can have a real legato. Uh, so we can only give the impression of doing it. And it's all like a trick, like a magician. But if it works, people believe you. So this, I had to find tricks for this piece. And the tricks are a lot like fingerings, the way I'm taking with one hand, holding one note with one finger. I mean, it was almost like a gymnastic, some of it, believe me, because they are really big. It goes from very low, you know, when the, the cello goes all the way down and the violin, it's a really, sometimes you have to almost, you, you wish you had four hands and only had two. Uh, so with this, and then there's an incredible work with the pedal. And I think this is where I spend most of my time is the pedals are really there saving me completely. And in particular, the sostenuto pedal, the pedal in the middle that people are not always very familiar with, especially, I mean, you know, professional pianists, yes, but uh, most people think the piano has two pedals and they don't know where the third is for, but that pedal is a real miracle. Uh, that was a great invention. We're lucky to have it. And in those kind of instances is the only way to be able to hold certain things while not holding others. And so between all the pedals, my fingers, uh, I mean, I kind of reinvented, not the notes, but I reinvented in the sonorities and the world. I said, okay, how can that work at the piano? And we had, same thing, we had a few takes, all one, there's no editing. You can't edit that piece. It has to be one big take. And the same thing, one of them just worked. And I came back, I was always, so I would play it, and then I always go back to the sound room, which is you know, two minutes. I mean, you got, it's, it's, that was in Zipper Hall, which is our concert hall in the school. So I just go off stage, then there's another door, and I'm in the studio where they were. And I finish, and I play, and I come in the room, and there's this complete stillness. They're looking at me. They don't say anything. And then I realized that it actually had worked. And, and then finally, they look at us and say, wow, we realized that it actually somehow worked. It was, that piece is just, as you said, is one of the most touching. I mean, it just, there's no even word. Just, just the first chord by itself already. Just that chord, the way it's voiced. It's all about voicing at the piano. We have to voice the instrument in a way that we sound like a string quartet. So this is really the challenge. So it was a fascinating journey for me. And I'm really happy 
that I did it and that uh, I was able to, you know, have it in the record. I did the best I could. I really wasn't sure until the last minute if it would be in the record or not, because I wasn't sure it was going to be, I was going to make it work at the piano. But, you know, for what it is, we'll never replace a string quartet. But it is possible to play it at the piano. I think I proved that, you see, we can play at the piano like if we're a string instrument. It's a good exercise. Yes, you did prove it. And thank you for that. And thank you for singing the praises of the Sostenuto pedal, the unsung hero sometimes. Oh, yeah. Of what we're able to do as pianists. Absolutely. Jean-Yves, uh, thank you very much. Uh, merci encore. Je ne vous souhaite que le meilleur. Merci. And I really appreciate you talking to me today. Great pleasure. Take care. been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Jean-Yves Thibaudet's album Carte Blanche on Decca Records. In order, The Living Sculptures of Pemberley, from Dario Marianelli's Pride and Prejudice Suite, Consolation No. 3 in D-flat major by Franz Liszt, Intermezzo in A major from Six Piano Pieces, Opus 118 by Johannes Brahms, I'll Be Around, arranged by Steinway artist Bill Charlotte, and Samuel Barber's Adagio, Opus 11, arranged by Monsieur Thibaudet. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Welcome back, and thank you for listening.